We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to Second Chronicles, please, and the 32nd chapter, Second Chronicles 32. We um, looked at Hezekiah's reforms and uh, read about that and all those names last time. Now we're in chapter 32. We actually had scheduled this, I think, last week, but because we had the Lord's table and those testimonies, I believe we did not read it. Uh, See if you remember, but yeah, is that true? Okay, that's what I thought. So yeah, I thought, wait a minute, I thought we scheduled this last week, but then I looked and I said, oh no, I think we didn't read it. But all right, so... uh, After these deeds, verse uh, 1 says of chapter 32, these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. Now, let's just make sure we understand. The deeds of faithfulness were not done by Sennacherib, okay? They were were done by Hezekiah before the Israelite king. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself, built up the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he sent military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him laid siege against Lachish to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and do not believe him. For no god of any nation or kingdom was able to to deliver 
his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers? How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Furthermore, his servant spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them that they might take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. In those days, King Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items, storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. The same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh his son reigned in his place. So notice back in 25 and 26, his heart was lifted up. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Maybe God has taught you as he has taught me uh, and is teaching us that uh, he does things in our lives to keep us humble so that we will not fall into the kind of trap that Hezekiah fell into. Uh, Uzziah did kind of the same, didn't he? Where he uh, became proud and went into the temple. And so if God has to do certain things in our lives to keep us humble so we don't fall into that, well, that's probably just better for us, isn't it? And uh, although it may be, well, humbling at the time, but that's the point of it. So 
I'll leave that uh, for your thoughts. And we'll invite Brother Jansen if he'll come and share the word. We're looking forward to it, brother. Thank you. All right. Good evening. I invite you to turn in your scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. That's where we'll be this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I titled this message, The Fragrance of the Gospel Diffused Through Christians. The fragrance of the gospel diffused through Christians, and we'll see as we look into this text exactly uh, what Paul means by that. And uh, we'll start off by saying the truth that we find in this passage is this, that the message of Christ creates a twofold effect on its recipients. It is re- repulsive to some, that is, those who do not believe, and it is life-giving to those who do believe. We know from the context of this passage that Paul has experienced much pain and difficulty in his ministry to the Corinthians. Just read the first letter, 1 Corinthians, and you'll, Corinthians, and you'll notice that. And, uh, and Paul uh, had much trouble with them, much difficulty in his ministry. In ch- chapter 2, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, he writes, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I had have so abundantly for you. We know that Paul's ministry with them was not one of uh, simplicity <laughs> and being easy at times, but yet he loved them, and he, what he wrote to them was out of a love and a concern for them a concern for the unrepentant sin that existed in some of the lives of those in the church there. Paul wrote to them to address these problems. We see that. And he awaited news on how they would respond to this letter. Paul tells the Corinthians that he even left an open door for gospel ministry to find Titus to know the spiritual state of the believers in Corinth. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul writes, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. We see here that uh, Paul had a wide open door given to him by the Lord to preach the gospel there in Troas. Yet he was so concerned over the state of the Corinthians, he, he actually left there to find Titus as quickly as possible to find out from him the state of the Corinthians. Now, Paul here in this specific passage in 2 Corinthians does not mention at this point, the encouraging report from Titus that the church responded rightly to his former letter. We don't see that until later on in chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. And this may indicate that while Paul was encouraged by this report, he was not relying on their response as a motivating factor for giving thanks to God 
for the general progress of the gospel being accomplished by God through his ministry. Listen as I read from chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, and then we'll look at this text in the moments that we have ahead. Beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We see here in these few verses that Paul's confident hope rested in what God was doing through him, regardless of the response of the Corinthians to his exhortations. He's not dependent on the results of his ministry, per se, as not all responded well to what Paul had to say in his ministry. Fortunately, in the case of the Corinthians, we see that their response was one that brought Paul great joy. You may not always think about it, but it causes great joy for your pastor or your teacher or anyone who is proclaiming the word of God when the message is received well by its recipients. But it seems that what Paul is saying here is that regardless of the response, there is still reason to give thanks to God as a minister of the gospel. And so first we see here in verse 14 the thankfulness of the messenger. Paul gives us here two reasons that he gives thanks to God. First, because God leads us in a triumphal procession. And secondly, he manifests a fragrance of the knowledge of Christ through us. Let's consider just for a moment, though, this first reason, and that is that God leads us in a triumphal procession in Christ. The imagery that Paul is providing here would have resonated well with its audience in their context. However, it's a little more difficult for us because we're removed from the customs of the day. But what Paul is creating here is an image of a Roman triumphal procession, which would have been a victory procession celebrated by Roman generals on the return to Rome after a successful victory in a foreign campaign. Now, some details about this procession will help us understand Paul's purpose for using this kind of imagery set forth here. If you could, with me, imagine this Roman procession after a long and well-fought battle, which ended in the victory of Rome, or Rome on victory side. At the head of this procession would be the magistrates and the senate, followed by trumpeters and some of the spoils of war, 
flute players and other instrumentalists, animals that were to be sacrificed to the gods, soldiers leading the captives who would either have been perhaps executed or made slaves. This display would have had two main purposes for which they were were to have done this, and one being to give thanks to the gods, the Roman gods, who had given them victory in this war, and also to glorify the valor of the triumphator. In other words, the, the one who led the army in victory, the general. If this is the picture that Paul is thinking of in this situation, and I believe it is, it leaves us questioning then, who does Paul compare himself to in this imagery, this triumphant procession? One might consider that Paul is comparing himself to the soldiers who took part in the victory, or perhaps he's comparing himself to one of the captives who is being led in the procession. I think that it's unlikely in my mind, it is unlikely in my mind, that Paul was thinking of himself as one of the captives, although Paul does commonly consider himself a slave or bondservant of Christ in other portions of Scripture, Romans chapter 6, verse 16, uh, earlier on in the first letter of Corinthians, chapter 7. However, in this analogy, the idea of, of captives is not the same as slaves or bondservants. It's a different idea. So I think it's unlikely that Paul is considering himself as one of the captives in this triumphant procession. Here it is likely that Paul views himself, and all believers for that matter, as one of the victorious general's soldiers sharing in the glory of his triumph. Uh, It causes me to think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 57, which says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In keeping with the imagery of the Roman triumph, then Paul proclaimed that God leads us in triumph in Christ. As participants in the ministry of winning people to Christ, we follow the all-conquering triumphator, who is God, in the parade of victory, as it were, sharing in the triumph of the Son's decisive victory over sin, death, and hell. Would you pause just and consider for a moment what a privilege it is to be partakers in such a procession led by God. Paul, though, gives us a second reason for which he gives thanks. Not only is it because he is led by God in this triumphant procession, but secondly, because he manifests through us the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Continuing continuing with the analogy of this triumphant procession, Paul gives thanks to God for revealing or manifesting through us the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Along the route of this Roman triumphant procession, 
very well there would have been those who were uh, burning ends, incense in kind of a, uh, in a, uh, a means of bringing honor to those who were in this uh, triumphant procession. Spices and perfumes were often part of the spoils as well, and so perhaps as you were a bystander in this, in this procession, or even a part of it, you would have smelled the, the fragrance of these spoils, you would have smelled the burning incense along the route. Such presence of these things would have resulted in the fragrant smells being diffused into the air along the route and being unavoidable. analogy I think of uh, in my mind in a modern kind of context is if you've ever walked through a store and walked past the perfume aisle or the perfume department, it's unavoidable. It's just the air is thick with that kind of the perfumes that are there. Or if you've ever you know, lit a candle in your home and quickly that smell is diffused into the air and it quickly fills up the room. It's it's uh, present there for you to smell, and it's unavoidable. This kind of analogy would be somewhat like the analogy that Paul is giving. However, the analogy itself is just that, an analogy. So then, the fragrance that Paul speaks of is the knowledge of Christ. And so when he writes and says that through us he def- God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge, what Paul is saying here is the fragrance is the knowledge of Christ. It is what grammarians call the exegetical use, meaning the fragrance is namely the knowledge of Christ. That's what it is. So imagine then, um, as Paul writes here, he, a minister of the gospel of Christ, is in himself a fragrance as he proclaims the word of God to those who will listen. What Paul is telling us here is that God has chosen to use proclaimers of the gospel, like himself, to spread the knowledge of Christ out to all people and in all places. A few implications that I draw from this is, first, God has not chosen to use miraculous methods to advance the gospel. He has chosen to use earthen vessels to carry the powerful gospel message to places near and far so that he might receive glory. Second, we see from the text that it is God who is the one doing the manifesting or diffusing. Paul recognizes the ministry he has is God's ministry through him. Not his own, but God's. For in fact, it is God who acts, causing some to respond to the message well and others to refuse to listen and heed its, its uh, command. A third implication is this, that God is advancing the gospel in all places. He says this in verse 14 at the end. The knowledge of Christ is being diffused in every place. Of course, the apostles were not able to reach 
all the corners of the earth in their lifetime, although Paul did have a very expansive ministry. But that leads us to then understand that furthermore, God is continuing to spread and diffuse the knowledge of Christ in every place today. The implication then of that is if the apostles are no longer around, how is he doing that? Well, he's not then only using the apostles, he's using every believer. He's using ordinary people like ourselves to diffuse the gospel message. God is actively and continually manifesting through us the fragrant gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a responsibility we have in then participating in that. At the same time, recognizing that it is God who is doing the work. He is the one diffusing through us, through our very words and our life, this fragrant knowledge of Christ. As we move along in the text, though, we find that uh, this fragrant knowledge of Christ has many different recipients. First, the fragrance of Christ is to God. It is ascends to God, that is. In verse 15, Paul states that we are the fragrance of Christ to God. Now, some have drawn from this a comparison between the Old Testament sacrifices or the burning of incense that created an aroma that was soothing to God. We see this idea in Numbers uh, chapter 29, verse 2. However, given the, that Paul has already provided an analogy for us, this Roman procession, it's unlikely that Paul is drawing any other comparison, particularly in this passage, and so we keep with this idea of the the uh, Roman triumphal procession. If you stop and think for just a moment, it is a profound thing, a profound means of bringing glory to God that we are involved in. We are, as the text states, Christ's sweet fragrance that ascends to God. Despite the fact that it is God who is the one doing the, uh, the manifesting through us, God is pleased to use us to bring glory to himself by making Christ known through the widespread diffusion of the gospel. To the extent that we diffuse the gospel through our life and words, we are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That alone should be reason enough for us to want to be participants in what God is doing in the work of advancing his gospel. Do you desire to be a sweet-smelling aroma to God? If you do, you desire a good thing, but we must then be participants in advancing the gospel. We must, as it were, allow him to diffuse through us Christ's gospel in order to produce that sweet-smelling aroma to him, which brings him honor and glory. 
However, we see from the text that there are others who are also recipients of this fragrance besides the divine recipient. And not all are willing, not all willingly receive Paul and his message. Well, in the following verses, Paul is going to identify for us two other recipient groups and the effects that the fragrance of Christ has on them. Look with me at verses 15 and continuing. It says, For we are to God a fragrance, the fragrance of Christ, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, To the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life. It's uh, interesting, if you look at this text here, there's a, a number of literary devices being used. There's a kind of parallelism being used uh, between uh, one being an aroma leading to death and the other leading to life. There's also uh, what's called a chiasm in which uh, the first kind of line here uh, is also reflected in the last where he says to those who are being saved and then look at the end of verse 16 it is a aroma of life leading to life but the two kind of clauses in between parallel each other as well where he says um, among those who are perishing it is an aroma of death leading to death but let us first consider the fact that uh, the fragrance is, to those who are being saved, a fragrance leading to life. To those who are being, God is saving, the message of Christ is one of life resulting in life. Notice here that Paul views salvation as lying in the present, those who are being saved, but it is also a past and future kind of thing as well. For those who have been saved, it is uh, leading to light or life or resulting in life, but also for those who are being saved, that is those who are, are saved but will be glorified one day, and also to those who have not heard but will hear and respond rightly to the message, it is an aroma that is leading to life. For the former of verse 15, that is, those who are being saved, the sweet fragrance of Christ is life-giving, is it not? Bringing newness of life into their heart, into their life. And it also results in their eternal life. However, there is a dual effect here. Although for some it is a life-giving aroma, for others... It is an aroma leading to death. Paul says this here in verses 15 and 16. Not all were favorable to the message that Paul brought, and the same is true today. As we seek to diffuse the fragrant knowledge of Christ, the gospel, through our words, not all receive the message Favorably, some scoff at it, thinking it as foolish, unwilling to accept it, 
and unable to understand it without the convicting and saving work of the Spirit. Although, nonetheless, interestingly, it is not as though the message has no effect on those who are dead in their sins and unwilling to turn from that sin. The fragrance, that is, the message of Christ, has an effect even on those who are not receiving it well, those who do not respond to it in a right manner. For those who are dying in their sin, the messenger of God and his message is the stench of death. The message, because it is given faithfully and because it is given, leads to death. After all, the gospel message does have a negative side to it, does it not? For those who reject it, there is eternal condemnation and punishment. As I was reading this passage and thinking about it, I thought of this this kind of idea. It is true that every man is accountable to God for his sin, whether he has heard the gospel or not, right? They are accountable for their sin. Nonetheless, however, it is far worse for the person who receives the message of Christ, that is, he hears it, yet refuses to receive it. That kind of person has no excuse. The result in his receiving that fragrant knowledge of Christ, yet not listening and not heeding its call, is eternal condemnation. It is a foul stench that leads to an eternal condemnation of death. So then, Paul here then is envisioning a single message or group of messengers as creating inevitably a dual effect. For one, the possession of eternal life as the final outcome of those who are being saved And for the other, the experience of eternal perdition as the outcome of those who are perishing. Life results from the positive response to the gospel and death from the negative response. As we go out and as we diffuse the knowledge of Christ through our gospel work and ministry, We are to some the means of receiving that life-giving fragrance. However, to others we are the means of condemning them only further to their eternal condemnation. Paul asks then this question at the end of verse 16, After considering all of these matters, he says this, and who is sufficient for these things? Try to put yourself in Paul's mind as he writes this and communicates this to the Corinthians. The fact that we are the fragrance of Christ and we have such an effect by God, by God's work, on people, so that some receive that fragrant knowledge as life-giving and others 
as a death blow, who, who is adequate for these things? I believe this is a rhetorical question in which the answer is no one. No one. No one is adequate for such things, for these things. I think we can understand more of what Paul's thinking as we look at verse 17 where he writes, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul was well aware, as so were the Corinthians, as many false teachers were trying to infiltrate the church, that there were some out there with, uh, with purposes that were contrary to Paul's purposes in sharing the gospel. Some were misusing the Christian faith, seeking to only use it for ill-gotten gain, peddling the word, as it were, using the analogy and the idea here that Paul uses, peddling the word of God, not speaking it out of sincerity, not doing it for the glory of God, not doing it for the intention of seeing men one to Christ for the glory of God, not seeing themselves as only vessels in the hand of God to diffuse the knowledge of Christ, but seeing it as a means of bringing glory and honor and gain to themselves. However, Paul does not put himself in that kind of group. Rather, he says, we are not like that, but they, that is himself and the other apostles, do it out of sincerity, from a sincere and pure Motive. He also states that they do it as from God, but as from God, he says, which speaks to the origin of their message. This is not a message that they have contrived for their gain, but it is a message that has been given to them from God, and so they speak it out of a, a true and pure sincerity to give glory to God and bring honor to him. He doesn't only speak of his sincerity in spreading the message of Christ, nor the origin from which this message comes, but he also reveals to the Corinthians and to us the fact that he speaks it in accountability or he speaks knowing that he is accountable to God. He says at the end of verse 17, we speak in the sight of God. Paul understood that as he spoke the message that God, that he was, that is, responsible and accountable to God to give an account for not only the message he spoke, but also the motive behind him speaking the message of Christ. I hope and pray as we consider our own testimony and our own 
desire to witness the name of Christ to others, are we doing it out of a pure motive? Do we have the kind of sincerity that Paul had? Do we recognize that the message that we hold is not originate, did not originate from man, but is from God? And do we remember that we are accountable to God in our motives? It's easy for men to recognize when we have spoke. Uh, it's easy for men to recognize when our message perhaps is not, is not uh, accurate to the word of God. They're able to discern that when we, when we perhaps malign the message of God. But no man but God can see the motive from which a person speaks. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians that when he speaks, he remembers that he is accountable in the sight of God. And finally, he says, at the end, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. In Christ. It is only because of what Christ had done personally in the life of Paul that he was able to even be used of God to share the message of Christ with others. And it is only because of Christ that this fragrance has any effect at all. Without the work of Christ on the cross to defeat sin, the message would have no power. It would have no effect. And it would be not worth even sharing had Christ not been victorious. So as we close this evening, I encourage us to consider our own proclamation of the gospel of course, we understand, understand that Paul had a kind of specific ministry as an apostle of Christ. However, in one sense, his ministry looks not that different from ours. We are, as he was, being led in a triumphant procession in Christ. We are the agent or the means in which God diffuses the gospel of Jesus Christ in every place. We are, to God, a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. And we are, to some, an aroma of death, which results in their eternal condemnation, while to others we are an aroma of life leading to life. So I encourage us and our witness to remember these facts and to know that there are some out there waiting, waiting to smell, per se, to, to speak, that aroma, that fragrant knowledge of Christ By which God, in which God will use that to lead them to eternal life. 
At the same time, we must keep the humble attitude that Paul had, knowing that as ministers of the gospel, uh, as both the messenger and also at one point the recipient of it, we are not adequate for these things. And finally, may I remind us that we are accountable in the sight of God as we speak this message and that we must do it from sincerity, knowing that it is from God and before God in which we will give account. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we consider that from within us, welling up and diffusing out from our pores as we speak is the gospel message which can give life to some, which will give life to some. Lord, may we walk in such a manner that you find us a sweet, fragrant aroma ascending to your nostrils. Lord, what a privilege it is to be used by you in such a way to bring honor and glory to your name. May we continue to be used by you and be fit vessels for your use. We ask this in our Lord and Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.